Hey everyone, back again. Okay, today we're going to conclude Marx's Capital, talking about parts 5, 6, 7, and 8, and chapters 16 to 33. Now, it might seem like a lot to cover, but the chapters get really short, and a lot of it is quite repetitive, and I don't want to be too repetitive, so yeah. Anyways, before jumping into that, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy, or on Twitter at David Guineo. If you're new here, uh, I don't know why you'd be starting with this, this episode, go to episode one, but if you happen to be new here, uh, I'm David, I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you, so if you're new, like, share, subscribe, I'd love to hear from you, and uh, yeah, if you found this in podcast form, you'll be able to find me on YouTube, where I sometimes release videos, and uh, that's cool, if you found me on YouTube, you'll be able to find me in podcast form, where there shouldn't be any ads, which is obviously great. And if you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. Okay, no more time wasting. We are starting here with part five, the production of absolute and relative surplus value, which ushers us into chapter 16, absolute and relative surplus value. So whereas historically a productive worker was someone who produced uh, things or cooperated with others to produce things, under capitalism, the productive laborer is someone who produces surplus value. So the, the laborer does not have value or is not seen as being productive in, under the system unless they are working beyond what they need for themselves and they're uh, kind of gathering or um, allowing for surplus labor to go to the capitalist. So society doesn't want anything to do with people who just live for their own subsistence, that is, who just make enough for themselves. In order for society to look upon them with starry-eyed exaltation, they need to be working for somebody else who is extracting more from that worker than they are giving back. So as just a reminder, absolute surplus value involves lengthening of the working day, increasing the actual amount of surplus value being uh, taken, whereas relative surplus value involves things like changing the nature of work itself by making work more productive, for example. So surplus value could only begin to be extracted when people had time to work for others. You know, you couldn't do it. You couldn't work for someone beyond your means unless you actually had some of your basic needs covered. That is, you weren't trying to struggle to survive every single day. You need to have some kind of excess of time in order to give to somebody else. At least this is the way that the story went. But time and time again, or historically, if we look at different people in different parts of the earth, it tended to be that people in the most fertile land, that is land that would yield crops more easily, and these people would therefore be people who had more free time, these were the situations that were less likely, or these were the areas geographically that gave way to capitalism last. Capitalism actually emerges in what Marx calls or identifies as the temperate zones, where people have to work longer and harder to live. So this is in the northern parts of the world where there are often long cold winters where people have to work really hard in the summer in order to earn to you know not earn but to uh, accumulate enough resources not only to survive the summer but to potentially survive the long winter where it will be more difficult to acquire resources and these people then therefore had less free time they had less time to dedicate to whatever they wanted yet these are the places in which capitalism gave uh, emerged first. And there could be any number of factors for this. Marx doesn't go into great a great deal of detail, but there could be any number of factors, be they 
political, be they uh, religious, like the Protestant work ethic, for example, where people were working so hard and in order to make their lives easier, they had to cooperate and that cooperation gave birth to a kind of hierarchization of different people, forming a kind of division of labor, whereas in other parts of the world where crops could grow more easily, there wasn't the need for such kind of hierarchies, these a division of labor and so on. Now the old political economists, and we're thinking here of Ricardo, of Mill, and even Smith, thought that surplus value and capitalism were natural. They believed that people always make more than they need, and it just makes sense then that they're going to sell the extra stuff that they have in order to earn either money or to trade for other things that are going to make their lives easier or better. But as we just showed, and we can see time and time again in history, people didn't always do that. People just made what they needed for themselves. And there's a moment in Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations when he's saying, and he's just spouting the stuff about how the market will just naturally regulate itself, he says that there is no need for people to have more than they need. So there won't be a time in which someone is going to need more than, let's say, one tea kettle. But of course, he had no idea about the system that he was describing in the form of capitalism, where consumption becomes a logic in and of itself, where you must consume for the sake of consuming. So you not only have people having one tea kettle, you have people having many, many tea kettles, each satisfying some different need, uh, apparently, or people having more than one television in their homes, like if they need it, uh, having more than one uh, shoe or kind of shoe, having more than one coat, they all serve the same function. But consumption takes over in these ways. And people like the other political economists who think that surplus value, consumption, capitalism are natural, were only born into that system, and so then, because they saw it everywhere, assumed it to be natural. And that puts us here into chapter 17. The changes of magnitude in the price of labor power and in surplus value. So three broad things can affect surplus value. The length of the day, the intensity of labor, and the productivity, productivity of labor. So the length of the day, that's easy, just making the day shorter or longer will affect surplus value. The intensity of labor, how hard you're making laborers work. Uh, you can do this through punishment, maybe through, maybe through reward, but probably through punishment, or the productivity of labor. Let's say more productive uh, techniques are introduced or more productive machinery is introduced, for example. Now, these three factors can be affected differently. So we might see an, uh, a lengthening of the working day, but we might also see a decrease in the intensity of labor and maybe pr productivity of labor will stay the same, hypothetically. He's, he goes through a number of different examples here, and let's go through them one by one. So he says, hypothetically, let's say, the length of the working day and the intensity of work stayed the same, while the productivity varied. So in this case, as productivity increases and it becomes more efficient, this will decrease the power of labor, labor power, the value, I should say, of labor power. And that is because people will, more can be done with fewer people. So there's going to be less need for workers. So the price of workers is going to come down because the demand is going to be less than the supply. This is also a point that David Ricardo pointed out as well. And he noticed this, he noticed this point as well, but he falsely believed that the proportional changes would be equal. So if productivity came down, then the other elements would come up as though there was a kind of one-to-one -one relationship. 
whereas Marx points out that it depends on the original status of the surplus value to determine how the proportions will play out. So if there's a lot of surplus value being extracted from workers, a change in productivity is going to change whether intensity is going to increase or whether the length of the working day is going to increase. Whereas if there's a very little amount of surplus value already being taken out and productivity, let's say, goes down, then it will affect intensity in the working day differently than if there was a similar shift, uh, a similar decrease in productivity or increase with a higher surplus value. So Marx is just complicating the formula here and saying that there isn't necessarily a one-to-one -one relationship, an inverse relationship, whereas productivity goes down, intensity must go up or something like that. There, there can be any number of factors. So then we can extract, for, for Marx here, we can extract three laws from this idea, from this relationship between these three elements. And they go as follows. Number one, the working day of consistent length produces the same amount of value. Number two, as surplus value goes up, labor power goes down. And number three, a change in surplus value is a consequence, not a cause of a change in value of labor power. So let me read those again just so you really get them down. Number one, the working day of consistent length produces same amount of value. Number two, as surplus value goes up, labor power goes down, which means surplus value goes up. That means more is being taken from workers, which means that the value of labor power is going to go down. Number three, the change in a change in surplus value is the consequence, not the cause, of a change in value of labor power. So a change in the value of labor power will affect surplus value. Surplus value will not affect labor power. And again, this is something that Ricardo picked up on, and he understood these three laws. But he conflated profits and surplus value. So for example, if we have $500 of capital, that is $400 is going to be spent, or $500 of profit, and $400 is spent going back into machinery, and $100 is spent on labor, and then $100 is made of, and sorry, we earn 100 from that then. So we have 400 in constant capital, like machines, 100 in labor, in variable capital, and then that makes us 100 extra dollars at the end of the day. So that's, that's a rate of surplus value of 100%, because we have $100 going to variable capital that yields or that gives the capitalist $100 in surplus value. So that's 100 to 100, that's 1 to 1, that's 100%. So again, surplus value in this case is 100%. But we've only made, or the capitalist has only made, $100 on the initial 500. So that means that profit is 1 to 5, 100 to 500. So profits in this case are only 20%. So again, because variable capital, the amount spent on workers is $100. And $100 has come out of that. That means that the surplus value, the rate of surplus value is 100%. 100 to 100, 1 to 1, whereas profits is measured against the total expenditure in the company being $500, but that only earns 100. So 100 to 500 is only 20%. Sorry for being so repetitive. It's just that with numbers or with lists, it's sometimes hard to follow. So let's continue here with these hypotheticals. Let's say, for example, the length of the working day 
was to stay the same along with productivity, but the intensity were to change, the intensity were variable. So whereas with the increase in productivity, prices of commodities might fall, because if productivity increases, things can be made for cheaper, so the price of those things might come down. With increased intensity, the prices may very well stay the same, but there's more things being made. So things aren't made for cheaper, more are just made with the same amount of time. So people are just made to work harder and faster and make the same things. They're still probably being paid the same amount, and so they're, the things are being charged for for the same amount, but now the capitalist is earning even more money because they're making more things to be sold at the same price, all the while the same number of workers are being employed, but they're working harder. Let's say, for example, if, I don't know, more disciplinary measures were introduced into a factory for people who weren't working hard enough, and people then got scared and wanted to work harder in order to not suffer those consequences, for example. So the final kind of example he gives us, or hypothetical, is if productivity and intensity remain constant, but the length of the working day changes, it, it varies. So if the day is shortened, but other factors stay the same, then the capitalists will need to decrease value of labor power to compensate themselves. And that is because if the day has shortened, that means less surplus value can be extracted from the workers. So the value of labor needs to go down, the amount the people are being paid, in order to cover that extra cost and that loss of profit, that loss of capital. Oh, I said that was the last one, but there's actually one more, and that's hypothetically all of these different uh, factors might change. So all vary or all remain constant, or some vary and some remain constant. So for example, the length increases as productivity decreases. So things may stay the same in real value, or they might go up. Or for example, uh, there might be an increase in intensity and productivity while shortening the length of the day. So the length here can be shortened because less time and labor is needed to cover necessary labor and surplus value. And that's because intensity and productivity have gone up. So the length of the day can be shortened and the same surplus value can be extracted from workers. And these are just all, I don't know how necessary it is to retain all that, but in any case, he gives us it as a kind of formula to understand the relationship between these different factors. And that puts us here into chapter 18, a different formula or the different formula for the rate of surplus value. So surplus value, remember, is measured by uh, comparing surplus value to variable capital. So the amount extracted from workers versus what is paid to workers. So in the last example, $100 was paid to workers and there was $100 of surplus value, which means a surplus, a rate of surplus value of 100%. If it was 50 to workers and then 50 surplus value, that would be a surplus value of 100% as well, because 50 to 50. Now before Marx and in Marx's time, some political economists instead measured the rate of surplus value by comparing surplus labor, dividing surplus labor by the working day you know, doing the same kind of relationship between surplus labor or value and variable capital, comparing them, but instead comparing surplus value, surplus labor to the working day. Now, the problem with this for Marx is that it can never give 100%. So you can never get a 100% formula from this because the length of time of surplus labor or what you get from surplus labor cannot be more equal to or more than the working day. 
because some amount of the day has to be spent on giving the workers enough for them to survive on necessary labor. Because if you had in this formula surplus labor compared to the working day, you would have, uh, in order to have 100%, meant that the entire day was spent only for the capitalist. And we don't even see that in, um, in the worst situations like slavery, unless, of course, the workers are literally worked to death. They are worked for the amount of time, be they 20 days or so, however long a human can live without eating, they are worked every single day so that they can't survive. But that is can't be the case because, or well, I guess it could be the case, but under this system where people are ostensibly given enough to survive, what will happen is that some of the day is going to be spent where they're earning money for themselves and that the capitalist is forwarding to the worker that the capitalist is always trying to minimize, yet it can't go beneath a certain point. So there is always going to be a proportion of the, or a portion of the working day that isn't surplus labor, that doesn't go beyond what the worker needs to do in order to live. Now, whereas with Marx's formula, the comparison of variable capital and surplus labor, we can actually get or understand the rate of exploitation being 100% or more. And in this formula, surplus value really takes on the form of unpaid labor because, and this is in Marx's words, uh, it creates a value for the capitalist without costing human value, him any value in return. So against the political economist, value is not, uh, not to command, or sorry, is not to command labor, but is to command unpaid labor, that is surplus labor. Because if you just had people earning enough that they are, you know, they come to work for the few hours that it takes for them to earn enough to keep living, you aren't going to be able to actually make anything from them. You are only going to be able to give them, uh, you're only going to be able to break even then. So the success of a capitalist is dependent then on exploitation. Otherwise, no value, no uh, extra can be earned from it, and therefore no, no capital can be earned. And that puts us here into part six, wages. With chapter 19, the transformation of the value and respect and respectively the price of labor power into wages. So how does value turn into the number form of wages? Or how do we put a price on labor? Remember that money is the objectified form of labor. It represents labor abstractly or it abstracts labor from the practice of labor and just serves as a universal equivalent to stand in for representation of labor. So we have workers as living labor, and then we have money as the objectified form of that labor that stands in to represent that labor. So for example, if a worker says, I am worth $20 an hour, then $20 is the physical representation of one hour of work from that laborer. And in order for capitalism to work, we ostensibly need free workers who go to the market with their commodity, being labor power, to sell to a capitalist. But there's something that's very interesting that happens here. Imagine a situation in which a capitalist was to sell a commodity, something that they made in their factory or had made in their factory, was to sell a commodity for less than it's actually worth. They wouldn't be able to survive. The, the system would crumble. But the same is not expected of the worker. So when the worker marches over to the market and says, I am good to work, and let's say we are dealing 
right now in a situation where that worker is going to be paid $10 an hour and they're going to work for eight hours. In that day, they are going to earn $80, eight hours at $10 an hour. But in that day, they might've made the capitalist $100, hypothetically. These are only hypothetical numbers, uh, but they have to earn more from the worker or else the system won't be able to keep going. So the worker is earned the worker's labor is equal to $100, but they've only been paid for $80. So what kind of hocus pocus is this where the masses, all of the people essentially, are selling a commodity for less than it's worth, yet the system depends entirely upon the opposite of that. It depends upon the selling of commodities at a profit or else the system will collapse and all the capitalists will start to lose money. And this is an insoluble issue, and it's one that leads to a contradiction, obviously, and demonstrates the kind of tenuous or the intractability of capitalist exploitation. Now, previously, uh, and even to this day, political economists just said, oh, well, just because the worker earned $100 for the capitalist doesn't mean that the labor was actually worth $100. It was only worth the 80 which is just a clever trick. It's just hocus pocus, just changing one thing for another. Whereas if you were to you know, uh, buy a commodity for under the real value or under the uh, price that it costs, you couldn't possibly say, oh, well, no, it's actually, you know, to tell the owner, the capitalist, no, this is actually, this doll is not worth $5, it's worth $4. And you just have to believe me. So it's it's funny how it only works against one group of people, but not uh, not against the capitalists, the owners. And that puts us here into chapter 20, uh, time wages. And here we're going to start to get really quick with the chapters, not because I'm rushing through them, but they're just really short. So a time wage is the amount paid per day, week to a worker or whatever. Uh, and you can use this to find out the ratio between the value of labor power and what workers are paid in wages. So how much they actually earn in that time versus how much they're being paid. Now into the next chapter, chapter 21, peace wages. Peace wages are not determined by time. You know, it's not said you're going to work for a week and we're going to give you $100 for the week. You're going to be paid on everything you produce. So these are the wages determined by what worker produces. And same applies here uh, about exploitation as in the case of time wages. So peace wages are more pernicious because the only way for worker to earn is by intense work is by working for the capitalist, by guaranteeing the capitalist's earning surplus value. Whereas with time wages, there is no guarantee that the worker is going to work. Like a worker can just hide in the bathroom and they're still going to get paid for their time if they aren't caught. Now with peace wages, and we're talking peace, like P-I-E-C-E, -E, we're talking about uh, a situation in which the only way to earn money for the worker is by guaranteeing earning money for the capitalist. And these form of wages provide a better metric for the degree of exploitation and the intensity of labor and productivity of labor. Now that puts us here into chapter 22, national differences in wages. Now to understand different wages in different countries, prices of goods, cost of training, labor's intensity, and the working population must be considered. So do different countries have different uh, costs of labor, different training expectations, and so on? And this is quite a you know, I think we all get it, that will determine the um, difference in wages, what wages will cost. 
and all countries are going to vary, obviously, but he says that nominal wages will be higher in more capitalistic nations, but the real value might be lower. So people in more advanced capitalistic nations or capitalistic nations that have evolved more are going to be earning more in the nominal value of their wages, that is the, the number of their wages, the, the dollar value. But the real value, that is what they can actually buy with that stuff, how much they can get with that amount they're making, is going to be less than in less advanced nations. Now, this is what he says. I don't know if this is actually true uh, today. I, I have no idea because I'm not an economist. But he, he gives us this, but I think that this is a point we can take with a certain grain of salt, given just the general mutations of capitalism between the time he was writing up until today and how it has shifted to a more globalized form, etc. And this puts us here into part seven, the process of accumulation of capital, which begins with chapter 23, simple reproduction. So when he talks about simple reproduction, he's referring to the fact that no production can occur without reproduction. So some of the earnings of production have to be put back into the system, you know, to maintain machines, to pay workers, etc., to buy new, you know, keep machines up to date, to clean factories, whatever. So some has to be put back into uh, production in order to keep production going. So some needs to be allocated to reproduction. And in the case of wages, wages are spent to workers in order to have the workers reproduce. Not only their, themselves physically, but you want them to earn enough to be able to raise a family so that you will have an, another crop of workers in the future. And this presents kind of a mystery of the emergence of capitalism because it depends upon the accumulation of capital that can then be put back into the system in order to earn more capital. But that depends and it is contingent upon capitalism already. In other words, it depends upon the accumulation of wealth and resources. And this has been attributed to what he calls, or what the translation calls, primitive accumulation, which can also be understood as original uh, accumulation, which is, he will come in the next part to kind of undo some of the myths around it, but it is a myth that people just kind of, with uh, the selling of their uh, extra stuff, with their surplus, eventually with time they earned enough money and they could hire an employee who could then work for them and then things just grew from there. As he will come to show in the next part, there was actually a great deal of exploitation, a great deal of imperialism, of slavery, of, of um, governmental collusion, of cheating that all contributed to the emergence of capitalism. And it wasn't some, oh, uh, you know, pull up your bootstraps and get to work, some Protestant work ethic. That's a total myth for Marx. But before we're not quite there yet, he also says here that capitalism not only produces things, it reproduces and produces the conditions that keep the capital relation itself going and being kind of revitalized over and over again. So chapter that puts us here into chapter 24, the transformation of surplus value into capital. So surplus value put back into production over and over and over again. It's always, some of it is going to be put back into the system in order to earn more from it. However, the only way this works is if production is making things that can be made productive or can be useful to someone or else no one will buy them. So for example, a diamond rings won't do much to improve the means of production or workers' happiness or efficiency because workers aren't gonna be able to buy these things. That'll only be reserved for 
very small portion of the community and won't do much for like actual consumption, actual production. Maybe that's different today and maybe diamond rings is not the best example. We could think of something more luxurious. Um, I don't know, what's something that's really lug luxurious? Uh, accumulating um, saffron, maybe. I, I don't know. Just something that's really luxurious that's only uh, afforded to the smallest portion of the population won't do much to actually increase production. So for capitalism to keep going for Marx, a certain portion of the surplus value needs to put to be put towards constant capital and variable capital. It needs to be transformed into those. Some of it needs to go to machines, some of it needs to go to humans, some, some workers. But if you've been listening, you'd probably say, oh, well, David, I thought that all machines are just labor because you need labor uh, to make the machines. But the thing is that under the capitalist form of production, the things that are produced become more and more detached or less and less attached from the labor that is put into them. And this contributes to this thing called commodity fetishism where things seem to take on a value of their own away from the real labor that is put into them. So they attain a kind of life and value of their own. And so when money is spent on the means of production like machinery, there is more being given to the machine than being given to the workers. It's almost as though the machine stands apart and above the workers, the labor that went into making the machine. So I think this is why we can say some value, some, some of the surplus value has to go to machines as machines, not as labor necessarily under the capitalist mode of production because that machine has taken on somewhat of a life of its own. But the capitalist is not going to spend all of their money, all of their surplus revenue or, or value back into the company, right? Because the whole point of being rich is to buy things you like. So there's a tension here because the capitalist on the one hand wants to buy things for themselves to make their life better, apparently, uh, to stand out ab above the rest of society. But they also want to put some of their money into the system, back into their Product, into production that they own so that they can earn even more money. And so there's a kind of tension here. How much is going to be spent to be put back into production and how much is going to be spent on the capitalist for themselves? And here we move into chapter 25, the general law of capitalist accumulation. So there's no denying that as capitalism evolves, wages will go up. But that is only a raise in the number value of the wages. The real value, how much those wages can buy, is not necessarily going to go up. So what he says, kind of, this isn't verbatim, but kind of what he says, a rise in the price of labor as a consequence of the accumulation of capital only means that the length and weight of the golden chain of wage laborers has been loosened somewhat. So they've earned more money, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that translates into more empowerment, for example, because they might be earning more money and maybe they're, they are able to buy a little bit more with that money, but exploitation might have gone up so much more. So relative to exploitation, they could have been making less and less and less, even though their dollar amount is going up more and more and more, how much they're making in terms of wages. And this process of, of extracting more and more value from workers leads to the centralization of wealth among fewer and fewer people. And this affords new opportunities for capitalists, especially uh, opportunities for competition to undercut their competitors, but also 
to open up credits. So now we can see the formation of people lending money. And lending money is, in many cases, more desirable than opening a factory. Because if you lend money to somebody and you charge interest, you don't have to pay them. They're, they're like a worker for you, but you don't have to pay them uh, wages. You don't need to pay them health care if they, you know that is something that happens. You don't need to worry about them getting injured or having to cover costs of them or anything like that. You're just making money almost from absolutely nothing at all. There's no risk. There's no risk because, you know, the commodities you're making might end up not being popular anymore or, or whatever. Credit allows the accumulation of wealth to a whole new extent. And here we get the formation of the first joint stock companies or just stock corporations and so on. And with this, technology becomes more advanced. And then we see more money being spent on revolutionizing machinery, which makes variable capital more and more obsolete, even though it can never completely go away it is going to employ fewer and fewer people. So with growing industry, more and more people might be getting employed, but their proportion will be less and less compared to the amount spent on machines, the amount uh, given over to machines. And what we will see, and we'll talk about this more in a second, what we will see is the or the increasing of what he calls an industrial reserve army or population, where there are just people who have no jobs. Who, who are just desperate for any kind of work because they everything's been taken over, which opens up, or I guess we'll talk about it right now, which opens up new kinds of exploitation because people are so desperate to work, they'll work for pennies. And these are also called redundant workers. And there can be three kinds. There are floating redundant workers. So these are people who come and go uh, to employment, but the proportion of workers of them are still going down. There's also latent uh, redundant workers, and these are the people that remain uh, remain in draining fields that you know are um, experiencing a decrease in the number of workers, uh, like in agriculture, for example, where workers have departed for jobs that they can find in, in factories in the cities or whatever. And then there's uh, stagnant redundant workers, and these are um, pulled directly from industrial reserve army and can therefore be maximally exploited. And this ushers in a whole slew of other negative uh, factors. So for example, with people rushing into cities, it uh, increases the population there, which increases the demand for housing, which increases the price of housing. So fewer people have a place to live. It just brings down the kind of uh, sanitation of the city. It becomes overcrowded. It opens up the possibility for the spread of disease and, and so on. And that puts us here into part eight, the final part titled So-Called Primitive Accumulation, in which he's going to dispel the myth, myths of primitive accumulation. Opening up with chapter 26, The Secret of Primitive Accumulation. So Adam Smith uncritically credits primitive accumulation for setting the conditions for capitalism. However, capitalism depends on more than wealth, the accumulation of wealth. It demands a transformation in the very relationships between workers and owners, between buyers and sellers, producers and and buyers as well. Capitalism depends upon the formation of a system in which the masses, the workers, are alienated from the things that they make. So they aren't making things for themselves. They're making things for somebody else. It's not something that they're going to take home with them. It's something that somebody else is going to make a profit off of. Also, in order for capitalism to form implies that there must be some kind of market there has to be a marketplace where other people are going to come to sell their own stuff made through the means of production, through their own means of production. 
which extends beyond just a single person having a lot of wealth. There needs to be a kind of complete societal overhaul. Now, of course, primitive accumulation or original accumulation wasn't just a kind of, as I mentioned earlier, uh, wasn't just people working hard to earn a little extra and that just naturally snowballed. It was done through cheating. It was done through uh, imperialism. It was done through slavery as well. And we're going to go into more detail with these now. So uh, that puts us into chapter 27, the expropriation of the agricultural population from the land. So in the 15th and 16th century England, masses were freed from feudal bondage, uh, you know, from serfdom, and they were thrown into more so-called free laborers. They became free laborers. So likewise, or concomitantly, capitalists were buying and employing land previously used by lords, feudal lords that had serfs. And what happened then was that people who previously lived on the land in form of serfs now had no land. They, they didn't have their little plot of land on the lord's land. They had nowhere to go, and they were forced into poverty or to work for the capitalist. Now, I, I, it's hard to say if one of these systems is better than the other, but they both present their own form of uh, exploitation. I think that capitalism is a development, and I think that Marx would agree that capitalism is uh, um, a step on the road towards finally communism or the um, equality between workers and without going into too much detail about that because he doesn't talk about it here but it is a step in the right direction in emancipating people from these uh, older forms of economic relations but in any case this move forced a lot of people into poverty to force them to work for now the capitalist and so this meant too that the state lost control of the land and land assumed a new form, not as state-run property uh, owned by lords and political affiliations. No, it became private property. And so people there were expropriated. They were forced out of the land because of this new status that the land took on. And this is one of those things called, a primitive, or called primitive accumulation, original accumulation, which depended upon this, these violent acts of stripping people from their land and throwing them into nothingness. And that puts us here into chapter 28, bloody legislation against the expropriated, and the end of the 15th century, the forcing down of wages by act of parliament. So that's a pretty clear title. The government worked essentially to bring down wages and to work alongside capitalists. So with the mass of people without land and employment rose crime, uh, crime and people becoming vagabonds, as Marx says, because people didn't have the means to provide for themselves, so they had to rely on, on crime and everything like that. And it was at this point that the government stepped in and started to set up certain standards. We see the police force emerge at, at a similar time as a means to attack, uh, as a means to uh, govern these people, to police these people who were forced into this position because of capitalism, not because people are naturally naturally prone to crime. It is a social issue, not, a, not an innate biological one by any means. But of course, these laws that were put in place didn't at all consider these historical factors. They just saw people as being in need of punishment. So it was completely detached from context. And the punishments were very harsh, even for beggars who could be put to death. Legislation uh, kind of teamed up with capitalists against workers and wages until the mid-19th century, at least ostensibly, uh, when you know more laws were put in place to defend workers, but still... Was it enough? That's the question. Now we get into chapter 29, the genesis of the capitalist farmer. 
So with legislation and the freeing of workers, farmers could hire people to turn a profit for capital on their, on their land. And that's the capitalist farmer. And that's pretty much all he says. Chapter 30, the impact of the agricultural revolution on industry, the creation of the home market for industrial capital. So it not all, that is the emergence of capitalism, this revolution in terms of agriculture and the turn towards capitalism, not only freed workers from guilds, from serfdom and all that, it freed the means of production and opened up the market, which I think goes without saying, but that's <laughs> what he says here anyways. Chapter 31, the genesis of the industrial capitalist. At its roots in, or it kind of finds its roots in usurer and merchant capital, that is the industrial capitalist started out as a cheater, as a usurer and a merchant capitalist, uh, you know, kind of enslavement and and the person working or who stole resources from other countries, other parts of the world. And this also saw the emergence of speculative capital and gambling on the part of banks and joint stock companies lending to the government, lending to people in the government. And this raised taxes because now the governments were beholden to these companies that were giving them loans, which they had to then pay for by taxing the people. And it's all very pernicious so far. But here we move into chapter 32, the historical tendency of capitalist accumulation. As private property, capitalism is not necessarily new. People had property before capitalism. Rather, the difference is when that private property is employed for the accumulation of capital, you know, to exploit workers, to earn more money than they are putting into your work, putting into your business, your industry, whatever, that the, they, you then use to put back into the business to either hire more workers, put towards the means of production or whatever, to earn more capital. So capitalist private property is not opposed to property, private property altogether. It is opposed to individual private property, which is very different. And I think that people sometimes come to conflate the two, where they say all private property is bad, when Marx doesn't say that at all. He, he doesn't think that property is bad insofar as, you know, you have things that you use for your own self-subsistence. But in this process of capitalist accumulation, what we see is the shrinking of the capitalist class, because with centralization, fewer and fewer people have all the wealth, which means that the masses are growing. And this intensifies the contradiction because more and more people are being exploited and more and more people then are stronger and can oppose the capitalist system, which will inevitably give way to its collapse, at least in theory. And that puts us here into the final chapter, chapter 33, the modern theory of colonization. So colonization demonstrated the, the intractability of capitalism. So people all over the world engage in labor quite differently and, and colonization was people in Europe going to different parts of the world and seeing that capitalism is not the be-all end-all. So they sought then to impose capitalism through a kind of systemic colonization or systematic colonization to impose that logic upon people in order to make it natural. The same thing with religion as well, to impose Christianity on people all over the world because they believed Christianity to be natural when, you know, just visiting different parts of the world should have been evidence enough that the word of God seems to have been very much limited to Europe, which is strange because if it's a God, you'd think its reach would extend beyond one continent, but in any case. But in these areas of the world, people would were not in for uh, capitalism because they were 
self-subsisting. They were making things for themselves to survive and they were flourishing because of it. They didn't need the system to come in and tell them they had to work more than they necessarily needed to. But then, as I already intimated, systematic colonization for Marx is introduced to strip people of their own capacities and to make them subject to capitalism. And that's it. That's the end of my notes. It's been a long journey and we still have volume two and volume three to get through. But yeah, if you like what I did here, love to hear about it. If I screwed anything up or missed anything, I'd love to hear about it. And uh, yeah, if you like, if you like what I did, tell your friends, who knows, they might get a kick out of it. Uh, like, share, subscribe, and I'll catch you next time. Take care.